So as I was saying, I'd really like to thank Dick Hebdige and the Institute for Interdisciplinary Humanities. Can everyone hear? Okay. For having invited me to speak in connection with the exhibition of photographs at the University Museum, the exhibition of photographs by uh, Perkle Jones and Ruth Marion Baruch. As was pointed out, Kathleen, both Kathleen Cleaver and Perkle Jones uh, um, have given talks on the campus. How many of you heard those talks? Uh, okay, so this is basically a new audience. How many of you have seen the exhibition? Good. All right. What I want to tell you at first is that when I initially received the invitation to do this talk about the legacy of the um, Black Panther Party, to think about the photographs, I thought that it would be fun to sort through my memories, uh, to think about the images, to think about the historical context, and so I said yes. But when I actually got to the point of sitting down to make notes for my talk, I found it was very difficult to um, engage in that kind of reflection. I found, first of all, that it was very difficult to bridge the gap of time. I found myself going back to that period, thinking in the terms of that period, and being relatively incapable of translating those terms uh, to a cultural and political context almost 40 years later. So, here goes. <laughs> I'm not sure what's going to happen here this afternoon. Uh, so, I am I'm calling this a meditation. Right, because meditations allow you basically to go where you want to go. So those of you who have already seen the photographs of the um, Black Panther Party, and, and I have to say my head is still swimming because, turning and whirling, because while I was familiar with those photographs, I hadn't seen the, the psychedelic posters, at least not so many of them at one time, right? So we, we walked through that and, and I'm, I'm still uh, uh, trying to emerge from that whole experience. But those of you who've seen the exhibition or have read the book that is basically a catalog of selected uh, photographs uh, uh, from that period know that these photographs were taken by Perkle Jones and Ruth Marion Baruch in connection with an exhibition at the De Young Museum. Now, at the De Young Museum, isn't that kind of... Do you all know the De Young Museum? Have you been reading about all of the... Okay. Uh, that, that, does that strike you as a bit bizarre? Um, okay. Ruth Marianne Baruch and Perkle Jones photographed the Panthers 
Between July and October of 1968, the ex exhibition was mounted, I think, in December 1968 at the De Young Museum. Over 100,000 people attended that exhibition. Later, and this was actually my first encounter with the photographs, it was published, a, a catalog was published or photographic essay incorporating those photographs was published by Beacon Press under the title, The Vanguard, a photographic essay of the Black Panther Party, referring, of course, to the fact that the Black Panther Party was considered, was widely considered, um, rightly or wrongly, as the vanguard of revolutionary struggle in the United States. Now, I wanted to ask you to try to imagine the possibility of a similar, of a similar contemporary event. You know, huge numbers of people flocking to an exhibition, the subject of which is an organization, a movement, individuals designated by the Federal Bureau of Investigation as, and I'm quoting from the Senate Select Committee to Study Governmental Operations with Respect to Intelligence Activities, the greatest internal, the greatest threat to the internal security of the country. J. Edgar Hoover made this statement one month before Perkle Jones and Ruth Marion Baruch completed their documentary project. And although there was an ensuing controversy that caused the art director at the de Young to question his original commitment to mount the exhibition, the show did indeed take place. Uh, and if you, if you look at the new um, book called Black Panthers 1968, the new... Um, uh, photographic essay, and I'm not sure whether it exactly replicates the first edition, but that one contains photographs of people viewing the 1968 um, exhibition. I'm, I'm beginning with this point because I think it's important to keep in mind both this vast chasm that separates that historical period from this one, as well as the way in which that period, the period we often call the 60s, uh, which extends, of course, into the 70s, the way in which that period continually intrudes upon our lives, often rematerializing in other forms, in many and varied forms. I could actually do an entire lecture on that. I could talk about the new Black Panther Party. Uh, I could talk about the ways in which this organization, this movement, um, Individuals associated with that movement, uh, including myself, and I actually saw I saw the uh, um, the poster of advertising this event, and that's a that's an image from 1960, 1970, something like that. Uh, but I keep thinking about the ways in which. The, the, the 60s are evoked within contemporary popular culture as a utopian moment, 
as, a, as an occasion for nostalgia. Uh, and not, not nostalgia in the sense that there are those of us who actually experienced it who are yearning for it. But, but, but this very deep nostalgia about that which appears to be lost today. That which appears to be unattainable. And this is a ubiquitous phenomenon which appears in video images, audio samplings, uh, images on t-shirts, uh, eBay. I mean, recently I spoke to a group of high school students um, at UC Santa Cruz, a group of high school students who were actually interested in applying to UC Santa Cruz. One of the organizers of the visit, who, the woman who had asked me to address them, came up and said, there's, there's this young woman who's wearing a t-shirt from the 60s. Uh, uh, and she told me it had my photograph, my image on it. And she said she must have inherited it from her mother or grandmother, right? <laughs> I mean, I didn't tell her that undoubtedly it was a new T-shirt. <laughs> that there are all kinds of um, similar commodities now that uh, uh, have caused me to think seriously about what it means. And I've actually had conversations because my first, my first. Reaction is, oh no, not again, right? And then as I talk to young people who tell me why they are attracted to such images, and we're talking about images of Huey Newton and images of Fred Hampton and Asata Shakur, and you know, we could go on. And I've heard a number of young people say they identify with those images because of the strength that they convey. Now, of course, these are basically headshots. Uh, uh. So, this is my. Well, I appreciate the, the 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 way in which that period and the images that circulate in today's economy uh, from that period have come to stand for um, strength and power and revolution. Um, but I question what it means to project the possibilities of strength and power onto the past. And of course, all of this is to say that we view exhibitions like the present one over at the museum with eyes that are um, not only disjoined from the culture that produced them, this is true of every engagement with images from the past. Um, but I wonder how much it matters that our vision is, is tinged with commodified nostalgia. Um, but to say a few words about the photographs, these are stunning photographs. Um, powerful, beautiful photographs. Uh, and of course the photographers are... Um, trained in the traditions of and worked with Ansel Adams and Dorothea Lange. So you see the whole history of photography in those photographs. You see the tension uh, within the history of photography between documentation and art. Uh, Perkle Jones and Ruth Marion 
um, Baruch set out to document the Black Panther Party. Uh, but, of course, as they document that, that movement, that organization, um, they create works that acquire separate lives as works of art. And in a sense, you might say, this is why they're so haunting. Um, and I would actually like us to think about uh, that. Um, I mean, we might, it's not really an opposition between form and content, uh, uh, but it is about that tension uh, between the aesthetic the aesthetics of the photograph and the um, moment, the historical moment, the historical subjects, the, the, um, the defiance, uh, the rebellion they attempt to capture. When I say that the cultural lens through which we view such photographs today differs in major respects from the context of their production, I'm not suggesting that participants in that movement or indeed former members of the party have a more genuine relationship to the images. Uh, uh, and I enjoyed reading Kathleen Cleaver's introduction to the, the new book. Uh, and perhaps she she drew from that during her talk. When she looks at those photographs, she sees herself um, 37 years later as a young Black Panther Party member. And in the book, there are many photographs of Kathleen Kiefer. She's one of the sort of central figures in the documentation. But what she sees is time lost the fleeting events, as she put it, given a timeless intimacy in these images. We were the ones, she writes, who fought, loved, and died for the right to live freely in our country. But it seems to me that these images are also as much about seeing through the camera about seeing photographically, as Edward Weston put it, and images of the Black Panthers happen to be caught in the frame, as much about that as they are about the documentation of a movement that threatened to turn civil society upside down or inside out, however, you like, however you'd like to put it. But let me try to pursue a new, a different approach to the question of photography, history, documentation, nostalgia. But before I do this, and I sort of began to talk about this uh, at the earlier event. I mean, you have to apologize me if I can't quite distinguish. I'm coming from a a conversation, a wonderful com com conversation with uh, Vilma Reyes from Brazil. Um, so I would like to first pay tribute to the memory of Rosa Parks, who died last week. Um, and um, um, I grew up in Alabama and uh, feel 
very connected to uh, those events that, according to the conventional narratives, launched the civil rights movement. I would actually like to think in a more complicated way about the emergence of the civil rights movement. It's not that 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 this woman who was a seamstress who just happened to be getting on a bus coming home from work and happened to be tired on a particular day. Happened, her feet were hurting. You know, of course she said my feet were not hurting and I was not tired. Right, right. <laughs> And she made a political decision to refuse to stand up. And that gets lost from the popular narrative. Uh, but that's not really what I wanted to talk about. <laughs> I, as I was saying this afternoon, her, her body was welcomed, uh, was it the uh, day before yesterday, into the Capitol Rotunda as the first woman and only one of 30 people who have been honored in death by a viewing in the Capitol Rotunda. She had, of course, the courage and determination of so many women of her generation. But the narrative is of her contribution is that it was brought about through the serendipitous conjunction of her tired feet one day and the arrival in Montgomery of Dr. Martin Luther King. Of course, if I had time, I would talk at greater length about her formation as an activist, an organizer, her role in the local NAACP, her participation in the Highlander School, which was a rather um, radical um, school for the education of organizers. But for the moment, what I want to do is focus on a very widely circulated photograph of Rosa Parks in order to contrast it to the photographs upon which we are meditating this afternoon. I'm referring to that photograph which comes from the UPI Beckman archives of Rosa Parks sitting on a bus uh, that appears to be empty except for one white man. Everybody's seen that photograph, right? She's sort of looking out of the window. Right behind her um, is another, is uh, one man, one white man. Uh, this, of course, was after the Supreme Court decision, but it's come to stand in for her act of civil disobedience when she refused to stand up. So a white person would have a seat. This image has become a quintessentially American image, reflecting in its peaceful ambiance and its individualist focus, Rosa Parks, the single black woman triumphant over the anonymous white male individual. This is the making of the new post-civil rights American nation. This is a photograph that invites identification, a photograph that transcends its own racial composition. This is a photograph of the woman whose body was allowed entrance into the Capitol Rotunda as a national hero. Now, I'm not suggesting that it would have been better had the Rotunda viewing not occurred. On the contrary, this event marks the significant difference between the era of her action and the present one. 
It tells us how far we have indeed come over the last half century. And of course, I remember um, being forced to go to the back of the bus. I mean, I could actually, you know, talk about what it was like as a child growing up with uh, all of the paraphernalia of, 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 of segregation. But aside from criticizing the way in which this image has has come to stand in for the triumph of American democracy, right? It makes me wonder also about the dead who have not been honored. It makes me wonder about the thousands of Iraqi people who have lost their lives uh, in um, and the Bush administration's seemingly unstoppable global war. It makes me think about the U.S. soldiers whose deaths are treated as necessary sacrifice in this so-called war on terror. Um, so much so that the 2,000th person to be killed was not even acknowledged officially by the administration. Basically, they said, you know, every death is like the other. You know, every death is equally um, tragic. I think that was the word uh, the White House spokesman used. But I bring the Rosa Parks photograph into our conversation because I would like us to think about why the Black Panther photographs, 38 years later, still appear as marginal, exotic, utterly incapable of being incorporated into a historical narrative. Into a historical narrative that explains where we are today. And of course that's the role of the, of the stories that have been spun about Rosa Parks. It teaches where we are today. Um, the Rosa Parks story tells, the Rosa Parks photo tells the story of discrimination, but discrimination overcome of wrongs, but of wrongs righted, of democracy triumphant. But the Black Panther photos are about rebels, the lumpen proletariats, the militants. They aren't peaceful, they aren't nonviolent. Uh, uh, they, uh, there are some photographs which uh, I suppose uh, not even, uh, it wasn't possible for them to be shown on this campus of, the, of members of the Black Panther Party with weapons. Um, but I, I'll talk a little bit about the militarism. <laughs> we want to we try to establish a critical uh, uh, position toward that. Uh, but I noticed that, that, there were, that there were photographs that um, didn't make it into the show. Well, a lot of photographs didn't make it into the show, so. But I can understand why. I mean, I can understand why. It would be very difficult for you to see those photographs and have any um, significant engagement with them. So I might also decide, yeah, I don't think these photographs uh, can... Uh, work in this exhibition. 
So what I would like to do for the rest of my talk, for the next um, maybe 25 minutes or so, is to talk about some of the legacies of this movement depicted in these photographs. Some of the legacies that have sort of slipped unnoticed into our institutions, into the discourses we inhabit, into the struggles we continue to conduct today. But first I want to acknowledge how complicated contemporary engagements with the history of the Black Panther Party are bound to be. Although it would be quite interesting to reflect on the strengths and the weaknesses of the Black Panther Party at that time, I don't think I can do this now. It would be too large an undertaking because this would entail not only acknowledging the brilliance of those who at a particular historical conjuncture represented a new way of struggling for a better world. Standing up, for example, to the police in Oakland with law books and guns. At that time, guns could be legally displayed. They weren't doing anything against the law. Uh, the, the law barring the public display of guns uh, was the response to the Black Panther Party. Uh, uh, as a matter of fact, I'll just say uh, now that our efforts today against racial profiling are very much linked to those first public actions taken by those who founded what was then called the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. But if I were to engage in that um, historical evaluation, it would also mean that I would have to engage you in a serious discussion about the militarism of the organization, uh, the uniforms, the masculinist and authoritarian hierarchies of the organization. I would have to talk about um, I would have to talk about what might today appear to be major contributions, major contradictions, uh, the coexistence, for example, of intimate violence, violence within intimate relationships with, um, with heroic struggles against police violence. I would have to ask you to try to imagine what about all of this had the power to attract hundreds of thousands of people, either as members or supporters? And I count myself among that group who was attracted uh, um, by the emergence of this organization. Now, When Dick Hebditch told me about the two exhibitions, he suggested that, you know, I might think about the um, psychedelic posters and the politics of pleasure uh, that uh, are so obvious there. Uh, the psychedelic posters associated with the Haight-Ashbury, these are basically rock concert uh, posters, although I saw a couple of posters for uh, Miles Davis, uh, like Miles Davis and Elvin Bishop. Uh, uh, 
I'm familiar with that period, um, but I was not a fan of rock at the time. And, you know, in order to explain that, I would have to talk about the racialization of music. Uh, I mean, we could do another uh, lecture on that. Uh, uh, and the extent to which the sort of asset culture was considered to be counter-revolutionary by those of us who imagined ourselves to be doing the same thing that, say, uh, Amilcar Cabral was doing in Guinea-Bissau. Uh, but I'll talk about that imagination as well. But it would be an easy, it would be easy to characterize the one subculture as one shaped by what we might call a politics of pleasure and the other represented by the Black Panther Party is shaped by a disciplined denial of pleasure. But as I thought about uh, the uh, two movements, it occurred to me that it may not be helpful to counterpose the two as polarities. Because we could also think about a politics of pleasure as residing in the kind of homosociality inflected with militarism, which you see so clearly in the images. There's a lot that lies beyond the frame and you cannot see. Uh, and this militaristic homosociality produced its own attraction for the women who were excluded from that circle, those circles. See, see how complicated it gets? Um, I mean, we could also talk about the way in which the Panthers attempted to localize global revolutions, uh, including their eroticized male figures like Che Guevara and Fidel Castro, and uh, there was a whole bunch of them, Patrice Lumumba. Um, so this is what I mean when I, when I started this project of trying to figure out what to say to you. I... Um, found myself engaging in a kind of juggling, shuttling back and forth in time without um, the means to mediate uh, uh, those uh, two um, very different um, understandings, those two very different emotional responses to uh, these photographs. Now, I've had conversations with younger people. I'm, I'm looking at the audience and I see we have a pretty intergenerational audience, mostly young. Yeah, mostly young. I can't tell. Anyway. <laughs> you know, one of the things I said, you, you know, I, I, I see someone and I think, uh, I think this person is a first year student, un first year undergraduate. Turns out they're an assistant professor. 
So what I always do is I start with, well, so what do you teach? <laughs> and the person said, well, I don't teach. I'm an undergraduate. <laughs> but anyway, um, that's not what I wanted to talk about. <laughs> what, what I wanted to um, tell you is that a number of younger people who have been exposed to the images and the documents of of the Black Panther Party, for example, the 10-point program, um, they asked me, didn't you find that really funny at the time? Um, and I said, funny? And then I said, but it's, it made me think. It made me go back and sort through my memories and to reflect on the, 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 the way in which the Black Panther Party produced a different kind of language. Uh, not only different words, uh, as I was telling Dick Hebditch, you know, the Panthers were the ones who invis- in, invented right on, right? But it was never just right on, it was right on. I mean, you could never say right on without right on. Uh, but... The, 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 the inflections, there was a very different kind of language. And, you know, once you accepted the difference, then you could inhabit that language uh, without thinking that there was anything strange or bizarre about it. And so what I did with uh, a, a young person who asked me about this, I said, well, let's go through the 10-point program. Let's see what we find there. Uh, And so that's what I want to do with you. Ten-point program. Do you all know the ten-point program? Okay. Um, One of the prerequisites for being a member of the Black Panther Party was to be able to recite the ten-point program, right? And I'm only going to give you the outline. There's also... um, uh, There's... There are, for each point, explanatory sections. Anyway, point number one, we want freedom. We want power to determine the destiny of our black community. Yeah, that's good, freedom. One might say, well, you know, maybe we need to go beyond the black community, right? You know, there are ways in which one could think about that, uh, but that's good. We want full employment for our people. Well, what I begin to see here is an engagement with civil rights discourse and uh, the, an engagement with the notion of, uh, with, with, with the assumption that only abstract rights constitute democracy, right? As opposed to more substantive uh, uh, rights. We want, number three, we want an end to the robbery by the capitals of our black community. And to that I always said, right on. (laughs) Number four, we want decent housing fit for the shelter of human beings. Now, you know, what do we say today? Look at all of the, you know, homelessness. And uh... Number five, we, and this is very interesting, number five. We want education for our people that exposes the true nature of this decadent American society, right? 
We want education that teaches us our true history and our role in the present day society. So there's something here about developing a, a critical um, apparatus, about not just education, it's not just any old education, but it's about an education that, that teaches us how to engage critically with the circumstances surrounding our lives. Number six, we want all black men to be exempt from military service. Yep. I mean, we could go a bit further, say we want all men, and since there's so many women now in the military, you know. Uh, and you see what we could do, uh, what we could do in, in order to think, I think, uh, in a little bit more complicated way about all of the debates surrounding uh, uh, of sexuality and the military uh, and you know all of that uh, stuff about don't ask don't tell don't tell and then the demands emanating from certain sectors of gay and lesbian communities to participate on a level on a basis of equality in the military we could say everybody should be exempt from the military everybody abolish the dismantle the military get rid of it all together and that is how we create equality that is how we create racial equality sexual equality anyway so, so it's really interesting to go through these points again you know we want, this is number seven, we want an immediate end to police brutality and murder of black people. And you, you know, not only black people, that uh, especially in California, you know, we have to talk about uh, Latinos, um, Asian Americans, uh, you know, white people who, I mean, actually, maybe if I have time towards the end, I'll talk about new ways of thinking about race, which we began to do in the first session. Uh, so we don't have to assume that there's, uh, uh, there must be a necessary uh, uh, racial identification in order for race, for racism to do its work. We want, number eight, we want freedom for all black men held in federal, state, county, and city prisons and jails. I mean, the problem is, you know, black men weren't the only ones in prison. There were, this was in 1966, right? Like, I went to jail a few years later. Uh, and discovered, I have to tell you this because uh, uh, what, you know, common sense is such that it often prevents us from recognizing what is before us. I mean, we see with different eyes. We, anyway, um, uh, you know, I had been out there, and I've said this many times, involved in this movement, free the black man. You know, all black men should be who are in federal county should be freed. And then I ended up going to jail. Oh, there are women in prison too, right? Um, I mean, not that I didn't already know that, but we didn't have the political um, 
conceptual means of expressing that. This is before the women's movement. This is before the, the development of the term sexism. And we didn't even have that term. Right? Um, number nine. We want all black people when brought to trial to be tried in court by a jury of their peer group or people from their black communities as defined by the Constitution of the United States. Okay, Constitution, interesting. Number 10, we want land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, and peace. Okay. And then, what I don't have here... Uh, that you'll see if you ever see a copy of the 10-point program uh, is uh, uh, the, uh, uh, when, in the, when in the course of human events, you know, drawing from the Constitution precisely to justify rebellion and revolution. So I say this because it seems to me that at least the founders of the Black Panther Party saw themselves um, very traditionally as American revolutionaries even though we tend to think about them outside of that whole, um, convent, that whole um, tradition. But what troubled me then was the lack of critical engagement with these ideas. What troubled me was the fact that people had to learn this by rote. Right? They just had to memorize it. It was okay. But at the same time, I should say, I was amazed by the intensity uh, of the desire to learn this new language uh, or sometimes to learn how to read. I taught a, um, or helped to organize a liberation school for the Black Panther Party in Los Angeles. And I can remember, um, I can remember teaching um, Vladimir, Vladimir Lenin, State and Revolution. And I will never forget these young men and women who were very, very much illiterate because of the fact that they didn't have the opportunity to attend schools that would have given them those tools. I remember them struggling, like using the dictionary, you know, making it through that text, learning how to read by reading State and Revolution. I mean, what more, what, what more could you want? And of course, these were young people who otherwise might have been drawn directly into the um, developing gang culture. Uh, the gang culture that we know today has its roots in that period as well. So the question is whether the structure of the Black Panther Party, with its hierarchies, with its emphasis on, on, on rote, whether it was a real alternative to those gang structures which tended to replicate the structures of authority that we, were, we all thought we were challenging. I mean, this is a question, and I think it's important for you to think about it in that way. Um, I wanted to say a few words about misogyny within the party. See, I'm still talking about what I might have spoken about uh, had I engaged... <laughs> Okay, um, misogyny. Of course, we have to talk about misogyny within the Black Panther Party, right? Um, but 
compared to other organizations at the time, such as us organization, such as uh, on the on the East Coast, like um, Baracus organization, Newark, the cultural nationalist organizations that tend really uh, to uh, constitute women as inferior, so much so that women were not allowed to eat at the same table with men. I, I'll tell you this story that I really have to get back to my text because uh, it'll go on too long. But my first encounter with us organization, I was in San Diego. Of course, the women were making the food, as women then did and continue to do to a certain extent. <laughs> but so we made the food and then went into the space where the eating was supposed to happen. And I sat down and, you know, with uh, getting ready to serve myself. And this is my first encounter. And they said to me, uh, uh, Sister Angela, uh, the brothers eat before the sisters. Uh, so I said, Okay, goodbye. <laughs> that was my first and last. But let me, uh, let me say that, e that compared, compared to organizations such as that, compared to the cultural nationalist movement, women within the Black Panther Party were respected as potential equals. But this came with its problems because often women were expected to rival, even surpass men in those activities that were normally constructed as male. So that the women had to have better gun skills, for example, right? Had to become better soldiers. Had to not only become better soldiers, but they had to be capable of, of, of carrying the child, uh, the children with them. There was, a, there was a, an, an image of um, an African woman with a child uh, on her back and a rifle um, pointed at some, I don't know, um, somebody, uh, some colonialist. And this circulated, you know, all over the world as an, as, a, as an image of what the role of women was supposed to be. Um, now, but as, as I said, this is not what I set out to do. And I'm going to just very quickly try to go through uh, uh, some of the legacies. Um, and I'm skipping, so this may be a little bit... May, even, may be even more disjointed because I'm, I'm skipping some of my notes here. I wanted to talk about a particular legacy you may not be familiar with. And that is the way in which the Black Panther Party uh, had an important impact on the conduct of jury trials, particularly where race is involved. There's a photograph over in the museum of Huey Newton, two really, really stunning images of uh, portraits of Huey Newton. But there was also a portrait, an image of Huey Newton and his attorney, Charles Gary. And I see Charles Gary as having been as much a part of that organization as, as Huey Newton. Charles Gary was an amazing attorney. One of the things he did was to develop a strategy for jury selection um, that was capable of identifying racism. Of course, this is back in the 60s. He wrote, 
He wrote the voir dire, or, or contextualized the voir dire in a document that's called Minimizing Racism in Jury Trials. The voir dire in uh, the case of uh, the people of California versus Huey P. Newton, something like that. You can still find it because this is, you find references to this uh, document in law review articles today. And I should say that during my trial, we not only used the strategy that Charles Gary developed to minimize racism, we tried to add sexism to it as well. It was very important in my trial that the jurors have some consciousness of the degree to which the Attorney General was trying to draw upon sort of sexist common sense to uh, guarantee that they would believe that I was guilty. You know, one of the things he said, yeah, she's a philosopher, but she's also a woman and she's in love and a woman in love uh, forgets all rationality. I mean, this is literally what was said during the trial. So we had, to, we had to question the jurors in such a way that would identify racism and sexism so that we could, we, could, we could use, we could attempt to get the judge to dismiss the jurors for cause, which happened on many occasions, or else we could use peremptory challenges. Uh, and there was just one story I wanted to tell you um, in connection with that because it's related to the Panthers, to Gary's development of the strategy to minimize racism in jury trials. Uh, uh, and it, it was, um, we, had, we had pretty much selected the jury in my trial. Um, and then the judge got a call from a young girl who said she was the daughter of one of the people who had been seated on the jury. She called the judge, she's very shy, it was, I, I met her, we all met in chambers, the judge had her come in and we met in chambers and she was you know, very, very timid and she said my mother was lying. Um, and she began to talk about what a racist her mother was. And began to talk about the fact that she had uh, a black boyfriend and what the mother... Anyway, uh, the fact that this girl was affected, first of all, by the voir dire, because she knew the kinds of questions. It was in the paper every day that we asked the jurors. And that she would have the courage to come and stand up to her mother. Had she not done that, I probably would not have been acquitted. There might have been a hung jury, but this was clearly someone who, was, uh, who wanted to convict me regardless of what the evidence said. So these are um, the ideas that came out of that collaboration between Huey Newton and Charles Gary are embedded in everyday practices within jury, jury trials. Now I'm looking at the time and it's about five after five and I really did want to have some time for uh, 
questions. So I, I think what I'll do is try to summarize the rest of my notes. I had about 14 pages. I'm on page 10. Uh, I'll tell you that, um, that I wanted to talk a little bit more at length about the Panther critique of police practices uh, and how they trace that relationship of p police forces to poor black communities from the historical slave patrols to the post-Civil War development of racialized strategies to police newly freed slaves. Um, and then, of course, in the 1960s, they decided to engage in direct armed confrontation. Armed, but symbolically armed. I mean, as far as I understood it, the gun was supposed to be a symbol. It wasn't... You know, although it did get used in some um, confrontations. Uh, but I think it got used more by the police, you know, than it did by those who were advocating the arming of black communities. Um, I also wanted to talk about the, camp, the transformation of the campaign to free political prisoners. There were so many political prisoners from the Black Panther Party. And, I mean, you can't imagine. There was like the LA 18, and they all went to prison. There were the Panther 21. Um, Afeni Shakur, for example, the, the mother of Tupac Shakur. Uh, you know, there were Panther. There are still members of the Black Panther Party in prison today. In places like Omaha, Nebraska, for example. But in any event, what I want to suggest to you this evening is that that, in, that effort to develop campaigns to free Huey, to free Erica Huggins, to free Bobby Seale, David Hilliard, you know, everybody went to prison. Um, and then I got, I, I went around the same time, so that's why. I always get interpolated into the Black Panther Party, even though I, wasn't, I was not a member. I worked with the Black Panther Party, but I was a member of the Communist Party, and you could not be a member of the Black Panther Party if you belonged to any other political party, no divided loyalties. So I said, okay, I'm going to stay with the Communist Party, but I'll work with the Black Panther Party. So I did a lot of work and was around and knew people and so forth and so on. But... Um, but all of those campaigns to free political prisoners allowed us to begin, at least tentatively, to think about the institution of the prison as a repressive apparatus beyond the explicitly political um, purpose of imprisonment. And I, I would argue that there's a direct lineage from those campaigns then and the current uh, movement against the prison industrial complex and particularly about abolition. And I think I want to end with, um, if I can, with some reflections on abolition. When I say abolition, I mean what kind of abolition do you think I'm talking about? Prison abolition? Does that sound like it's possible? Or is it kind of very bizarre? 
Okay, anyway, I was talking about prison abolition. And so, the, the abolitionist movement has a, has a long history. And during various eras, um, you know, activists have maintained that the prevailing conditions in prisons and jails, along with their failure to, the failure of the prison to accomplish its announced goal, that that constitutes the strongest argument for abolition. So we would, we would talk about the 10-point program. We would talk about the Attica Rebellion and the way in which abolition was evoked during that uh, rebellion. Um, Okay, what might be helpful is for me to say that the notion of prison abolition, which if we trace its genealogy, requires us to take up the work of the Black Panther Party. That prison abolition provides us a way to talk about the pitfalls of this, the particular version of democracy we inhabit particular version of democracy represented by U.S. capitalism. Um, capitalism has always produced problems that it can't solve. And that is even more obvious today. Capitalism produces problems that it is not prepared to solve. It has the means of solving these problems but is not prepared to give up the drive for profit, to put things in a relatively simplistic way. So prison abolition requires us to recognize the extent to which the social problems, which the prison presumes but cannot um, solve, are embedded in the present social order. And it's a social order which will have to be radically transformed. Prison abolitionist strategies reflect an understanding of the connections between institutions we think about as disparate and disconnected. They reflect an understanding of the extent to which the overuse of imprisonment is a consequence of eroding educational opportunities further dimension, diminished by using imprisonment as a false solution for bad public education. Persisting poverty in the heart of global capitalism leads to large prison populations, which in turn reinforces the conditions that reproduce poverty. Does that make sense? So when I refer to prison abolition, I'm, I'm thinking about what was evoked by the Black Panthers, but I'm also thinking about the Du Boisian notion of abolition democracy. That is to say, abolition is not only, or perhaps not even primarily about the negative process of tearing down, but it's also about building up. It's about creating new institutions. Du Bois, of course, very specifically referred to slavery and its legal disestablishment as an economic institution. But I think his argument, his observation that this negative process by itself was insufficient, that this has very deep resonances for prison abolition. Du Bois pointed out that in order to fully abolish the oppressive conditions produced by slavery, new democratic institutions 
should have been created. Because this did not occur, black people encountered new forms of slavery from debt peonage and the convict lease system to segregated and second class education. The prison system carries out, continues to carry out this terrible legacy. It has become a receptacle for all of those human beings who bear the inheritance of the failure to create abolition democracy in the aftermath of slavery. And this inheritance is born not only by black prisoners, but by poor Latino, Native American, Asians, and, and Asian and white prisoners. It's used as a receptacle for people who are deemed the detritus of society is on the rise throughout the world. So finally, in light of the global war on terror, what are the prospects for prison abolitionism? Well, you see, what I wanted to do was to urge you to assist us to develop a conversation, a broadly based conversation about prison abolitionism. Prison abolition and the uh, abolitionism, we would all be abolitionists, right? Uh, prison abolition, death penalty abolitionists, prison abolitionists. Um, I want to... Well, let me say the need to generate a conversation about the prospects for abolition is even greater now because linked to the abolition of prisons is the abolition of the instruments of war, the abolition of racism, and of course the abolition of those, circ those social circumstances that lead poor men and women to look toward the military as their only avenue of escape from poverty and homelessness and lack of opportunities. So I really do want to conclude this meditation on the Black Panther Party with an appeal to you to think deeply about how you might contribute your voices, your ideas, your talents, your activities to the creation of a political culture that emphasizes dissatisfaction with the world as it is and urges us to imagine a better world. And not only to imagine it, but to work wherever we are, for radical change. And to be very local and very specific, there is an election coming up on Tuesday, right? There's also an execution scheduled on December 13th, less than a month and a half. The election, the ex I was going to say the, the execution of Arnold's... <laughs> <laughs> okay, the, you, know, you know about the election. The execution is um, uh, Stanley uh, Tookie Williams, who was one of the founders of the Crips and has basically spent most of his life trying to change young people. He has written books. As a matter of fact, Stanley, the White House gave him an award not knowing that he was on death row. And now he just lost his appeal and has been in prison for like 24 years and is scheduled to be executed on the 13th. Something, I mean, we have to stop that. We really have to stop that execution. There is a way, I think, in which we can make new legacies.
for the peer, yet we've discussed this afternoon. Legacies that reflect our ability to think critically about what the Panthers were able to achieve and what their limitations were. Regardless of the many critiques I might make of the work of their work at the time when they were active, I honor them for their insistence on building transnational solidarities. The creation of these transnational solidarities which require us to understand and unmake our emotional attachments to the United States as a nation will give us the collective strength to say no to the official versions of democracy promoted by the Bush administration, democracy as a, semin as a synonym, as a mere synonym for capitalism, and the collective power to erect new, more radical democratic orders. Thank you very much. One thing that stands out in my mind is the breakfast program that the Panthers ran and the response of the establishment to it. And I wonder if you might be able to tell us about that. Well, yeah, the breakfast program. I mean, most people who are familiar with the Black Panther Party know about the breakfast program, right? Who doesn't know about the breakfast program? Okay, I always take too much for granted. Uh, uh, the, the, let me see how I can put it very briefly. Uh, there were a number of service programs that the Black Panther Party established. One was free breakfast for children. Uh, now you may be familiar with breakfast in the schools. That's clearly a legacy. The schools began to officially provide breakfast for children as a direct result of the Panthers' project, but also about the claims they made around the importance of food for learning. You know, how can a child learn if that child has had nothing to eat? Uh, and so they had breakfast programs in Oakland and, you know, in various places where kids would just come in and um, eat breakfast and learn a little bit about black history and revolution and other things and then they would go to school <laughs> and so the public schools decided well they better start uh, providing breakfast <laughs> so they could so that they could do some of their own indoctrination right and say the ple say the pledge of allegiance to the flag at breakfast <laughs> yeah but there were, there were also schools, there were other service uh, uh, programs that uh, the Black Panther Party uh, created. And that is very important to acknowledge. I happen to be here as a tourist for another couple of weeks, so I figured this is my last chance to see you. I see you also as young man, as he did, but I was see you as young communists in the Eastern Europe. You were communist not only for 60s, but for 70s, 80s. And I remember in 89 or 90, I spoke with you, and you told me that you were proud to be communist, mm -hmm. and that it was not for communist party and the socialist bloc that countries like Namibia, for example, would not exist, and that South Africa would still have apartheid. And now that we see that there is no more socialist states or 
not the socialist bloc. And we see that countries like United States of America can go into Iraq, can go tomorrow into Syria. I want just, and I'm sorry that it's not maybe on subject of Black Panther Party, but I want you to, how do you feel about yourself as being for, what, some 30 years member of Communist Party and the, uh, what the whole world was looking at you like beautiful communists from the United States of America? And what do you think that you left party and how do you believe now about theory of socialism? And I'm here only on vacation, so any CIA agent, <laughs> I go. Well, I don't feel very different from, when did we talk? When did, when did I say that to you? Where? <laughs> Not in this country. Okay, now, now I can imagine where it was, okay. <laughs> um, well, I did um, actually leave the Communist Party, not because I feel any less passionately that we need to build um, social, socialism, communism, but rather because of the... Um, failure to democratize the, the party, the internal workings of the party. So I, I actually, actually, I got um, a whole bunch of us who were members of the leadership were not allowed to run and because we had circulated a petition designed to encourage. But, you know, that, that was back then. And I should say that I have very... Uh, uh, good relationships with members of the Communist Party and I, you know, I still, I, even though I'm, I'm, I may not be a communist with a large C, I'm still a communist with a small C. Um, I still believe that capitalism cannot inform the future of this planet. Uh, and I... You know, I, um, and when I, when I look at Cuba, you know, I think back to the Panthers and I say, right on. <laughs> I mean, oh, don't let me get started about Cuba. But you, you, when, when Hurricane Katrina um, happened and we were all watching the news and there was no help and no one knew... People had no idea what was going on. And Fidel announced that there were something like 1,100 doctors at the airport in Havana with all of the equipment they could possibly need, and they were ready to get on a plane and could have been in New Orleans within two hours. Huh? Well, no, it's 90 miles from from Key West. It's a little bit further to New Orleans. Uh, but, um, and the fact that, the fact that Cuba had been able to deal with, you know, Hurricane Ivan and had done these, uh, evac not, not only evacuations of people, but people, their animals were evacuated. And people who wanted to evacuate their color televisions were able to evacuate 
you know, their property. Um, and not a single person died. I mean, that's actually quite amazing. And I thought it was quite ironic that this program that Cuba has, like I said, this is the last thing I'm going to say about because I tend to go on and on about uh, Cuba. But there is this program uh, designed to train medical doctors from uh, third world countries, countries in the global south, but also uh, poor people, people of color in the U.S. And it's been going on for like a, about the last four years, four or five years. The first U.S. person the first USMD to graduate from that program in Cuba was ironically from New Orleans. Um, so yeah, I have a great deal of, of respect for those who uh, are going against the grain and insist on uh, uh, arguing that you know capitalism is not capitalism cannot be our future. Um, it cannot be our future. If it is, uh, so many of the people whom we count as our community will be lost forever. I mean, that is what this whole prison industrial complex is about. You know, that is what the privatization of health care and the privatization of education and the privatization of punishment, that whole juggernaut of privatization. But let me stop because I'll... <laughs> okay. That, is that uh, an okay answer? Okay. <laughs> Okay. It's him. You want to go? Okay, I'll try to be okay. really brief. I, uh, I don't. I think maybe we can take about two or three more questions. Uh, uh, so. My question is very uh, quick. Uh, what happened to a lot of the black pamphlets? They had newspaper, you know, weekly newspaper on the UC campus and uh, they had plates, and it would be nice for history. You know, the you know, Black Panther, it came to the UC, like UC Irvine, and also other universities, and they had some newspaper they handed out to the people. So that would be nice uh, if someone had as history. Do you recall the, the Black Panther newspaper? Yeah, it was just called the Black Panther. Okay. Was it? Oh. Yeah. And actually there are archives. If you're interested in reading some of the old copies, they, they should be available um, on this campus. So somebody who knows how to, um, um, and, and it might actually be in a database. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. So you could probably, okay. are you, do you know any librarians on this campus? Oh yeah, I would just, I'll talk with you. Go later. to the library, yeah, yeah. Uh, hi, thank you for reminding us uh, about the legacy of the 60s and how much we still have to learn from that. Um, I can totally agree with the abolition of prisons when one person can kill two people and be executed, another person can kill 100,000 people and be our president. <clears throat> one, of the, one of the things that uh, they did to um, discredit the Black Panthers and many other people was to say they were violent. They were violent when we know who the real violent people were. 
And I'm wondering if you can, and they're doing it again with this whole thing with terrorists, you know, who are the real terrorists. So I wonder, in the spirit of blowback and the legacy, if you can share some wisdom on how we successfully identify who the really violent people are and how we can talk about who the really caring people are. Well, see, I think you already did it. You already told us how to go about doing it. Uh, and it, 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 what, what you're talking about is um, um, developing the tools that allow us to assume a self-conscious and self-critical attitude uh, towards you know, all of the, the ideas that... Um, surround us and I think you're absolutely right violence okay now who are the real perpetrators of violence who has the monopoly of have to look at the military we have to yeah I think you just did it thank you and as many of us here are aspiring um, community scholars um, I wonder if you can talk to or discuss about the importance or the role of the uh, intellectual scholar in relation to the community amid, amid capitalist bourgeois society and its corrosive anti-intellectualism. Okay, yeah. <laughs> okay, first of all, um, I mean, I actually take Gramsci's lead here. Um, and I don't assume that just because you have an education from an institution like this, you are the intellectual who will return to your community and provide leadership. Um, knowledge production happens in many sites. Just because you happen to be the ones who have the opportunity to engage in this full time for a little while does not mean that you're superior to someone who might develop greater powers of perception, you know, while working on the job. So... Um, so I actually like to think about intellectuals as emerging from, from many different places, prison intellectuals, uh, labor movement intellectuals, uh, uh, university, you know, university intellectuals. But, you know, <laughs> but, oh, this is, like, difficult uh, because uh, I, um, I'm, as someone attached to the university, I know how much this institution uh, wants us to believe that we are the ones, right? And not only, you know, for the um, status quo, but we are the ones who represent hope and um, change. And I, unfortunately, I don't think we do. I think we have a major role to play. But I think that requires some humility. It requires a sense of what it means to collaborate uh, uh, with people across these uh, lines, and especially people who come from communities that uh, have uh, historically been barred from institutions like this. Uh, uh, 
you know, it's so easy to come here and then think just because you know a few big words and, you know, I mean, you can go back to your communities and, you know what I mean? So that's the main challenge. So that is the beginning of a conversation on the role of the intellectual. <laughs> okay. Hello, my, um, my name is Leah Lee, and I'm a junior college student at UCSB. And my question is in response to your um, topic of police brutality. Um, with my, many people in my family who are police officers and law enforcement officers um, in my community service participation, um, the topic of crime in underprivileged and underrepresented areas has come up oftentimes. So my question is, how can we as college students work with law enforcement officers in our community to solve the problem of crime and police brutality and also the institution of racism through the prison system? <laughs> oh, that's a huge question. Uh, and I think we would have to talk a little bit about uh, that. Um, and I'm not... Um, the, 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 the law enforcement people are people who are charged with the eradication of crime, right? That is what they're supposed to do. And um, it has never happened. You know, I actually, I mean, I think about the role of the police, the role of the prison historically, and wonder, why do we still have crime? You know, why, you know, all of these decades and 100 and 200 years later, it's still with us and it's worse than it's ever been. So there must be something about the means of addressing these issues. So that is why, uh, and, 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 and don't get me wrong, I think it's really important to have sensitive people in those places uh, because police can be really brutal, right? Uh, and, and I actually thinking about the history of the Black Panther Party, we never would have known that Fred Hampton and Mark Clark uh, were assassinated by the Chicago police if a group of black policemen within the Chicago police department had not revealed what was going on. So police departments are not um, homogeneous units, that's for sure. But I think it is important to have a broader sense of what creates crime, or what generates crime, you know, what we call crime. And how, why, can't we, why can't we think about it in terms of, of possibly withering away if we create jobs and education and health care and, you know, all of those things. I'll, I mean, I'll tell a, a story to conclude because this is a conversation that could go on for a very long time between you and me. And maybe we'll have the opportunity to do that. Um, but in, in New Orleans, I have a student who just finished a Ph.D. Um, on um, what, what's called the Sheriff's School in New Orleans. And this school was created by the sheriff um, to serve what they call at-risk at youth. 
I mean, all of these terms that we use today, at, you, uh, at risk, diversity. But anyway. Um, and so what happens is that young men, this is for boys, young boys who are identified as being at risk, at risk, are selected to go to this school which is just like a jail. It's the sheriff's school. It looks just like a prison. It's like juvenile hall. They have the same regimes, right? And so what happens is that these boys learn how to be treated as criminals, precisely that which is designed to save them from criminality, criminalizes them. And I think... A lot of times that's, what the, that's been the role of the police writ large. Uh, and so I would like to see us think about how to negotiate between that larger problem and the very specific problem of, uh, of how one uh, deals, how one encourages uh, police officers who are sensitive and have some progressive view of the future to do the kind of work that can help move us forward. Is that okay? Okay.